Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I welcome back Juma Araki. Juma is a certified personal trainer from the Norwegian School of Sports Science and holds a master's degree in sports nutrition from the University of Stirling. Juma has also completed his IOC diploma in sports nutrition for the International Olympic Committee. He's also the CEO of Iraqi Nutrition and is head nutrition at AFPT in Norway, where he lectures in sports nutrition. So welcome back, Juma. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. I think roughly about two years. Uh, I'll give you the introduction again. Obviously, Juma was on back in way back on episode 64, where we looked at supplementation. Uh, and I've got the notes to my side where we looked at is too too much protein a myth uh nitrogen should be the way you should have the real concern what recommendations he has towards supplementation uh obviously you said vitamin c omega-3 and vitamin d what you recommend to, to your athletes so obviously i would implore people to obviously go check that episode out as well so obviously straight off the bat then juma if we t- touch upon your study that you did with et al in 2019 in terms of how much how many meals should people eat in terms of from a protein consistency well um if you look at the research you you can see that there's a, a lower um threshold to how many meals that you should eat because of the protein balance. So in a day, you'll have uh, an increase in protein synthesis and between meals, you have protein um, breakdown. So what we want, if we, if you want to build muscle is that the protein synthesis should be higher than the protein breakdown in total during the day. So the easiest way to visualize this is, and I actually, this is not from me. This is actually from one of my, professors, Professor Kevin Tipton, because usually when people think about protein synthesis and protein breakdown, they think on think it as, as an on and off switch, which is not because these processes, they are on during the day, but it's more like who's the most dominant of the two. So the easiest way to visualize protein balance is if you visualize a brick wall and you have one person on one side putting bricks on and one person on the other side taking bricks off. If they work um, like as fast, fast as each other, you won't have any changes in the brick wall. But if you strength train and you eat frequent meals of protein during the day, you'll have an uh, upregulation of protein synthesis, which basically then means that the one person on one side, he'll have maybe a Red Bull or energy drink or something like that, that makes him work faster than the other person. So 
uh, during time maybe he's able to put on three bricks while the on the the person on the other side is able to take one brick off and then you'll have a higher wall which basically is your um, your muscle so like i said during the day you'll have increases in protein synthesis and it's important that you have at like a minimum of these increases during the day to maximize the effect on on muscle hypertrophy which if you look at the literature you should at least have three protein feedings during the day in our paper we concluded that protein feeding should be between three and and six meals uh, and most people they end up eating somewhere between that uh, usually i say that sweet spot for most people is between four and five meals and the way i do it and the way i recommend that people do is if you first take the total amount of protein that you need during the day and have a goal of having between 30 and 40 grams of protein for each meal that should be the basis on how many meals you should eat so for example if we take a hundred kilo guy and we say that he needs approximately two grams of protein per kg of body weight, that's a total of 200. So the way you would do it is you'll take the total amount, and then each meal should be with between 30 and 40 grams, and then you keep, it, you keep the meal frequency between three and six. So in this case, you would take 40 grams and eat five meals throughout the day. So 40 grams to each meal, the total will then be 200 grams. If we take a female that's 50 kg, like half the amount and say 100 grams during the day, it would be more, uh, it, 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 I would recommend that it would be either um, uh, 30 grams three times a day, or you could have some of the meals that are higher. For example, before bed, it's more recommended that you have a, higher intake of uh, of protein due to a prolonged fast during the night and you can have smaller meals but that's the way i i recommend people do doing it like trying to figure out how many meals you should eat you should take the total amount have a target of between 30 and 40 grams of protein to each meal and keep it between three and six meals the reason why you shouldn't have maybe more meals is that there's some literature that shows that if you eat protein too frequently you don't have the same robust uh, signaling for protein synthesis so it's called the refractory response of protein where if you eat proteins uh, frequently in a short amount of time the the protein synthesis doesn't get that same robust increase so i think bo and colleagues did this study in 2001 where they showed that if you try to stimulate protein synthesis two hours after a meal, you didn't get the same uh, response for protein synthesis. So it's recommended that it should be a, a longer period between the meals, like three hours or more, uh, so that uh, the protein synthesis can go back to baseline and then you try to increase it again. Uh, I'm not a big fan of trying to complicate things too much. That's why I'm saying that the easiest way to do this is try to think of total amount of protein 30 to 40 grams per, of protein per meal and try to keep it between three and six. 
I would also like to add one more thing, and that is um, importance of protein quality because there is a difference between um, protein that comes from plant-based sources and proteins that come from animal-based sources. So when you, the 30 and 40 grams protein recommendation, what I usually tell people is that try to at least have two thirds of that coming from a complete source. So example, if, if you were to eat 30 grams of protein and you're eating, let's say a sandwich for lunch with some cheese and ham, if 20 grams is coming from the bread and 10 grams is coming from the cheese and the ham, that's not optimal. Even though it's 30 grams of protein, it's not the optimal way of doing it. But if 10 grams come from the bread and 20 grams come from the cheese and ham, that's, that's more optimal um, uh, doing it that way. So you have to also think about the protein quality, uh, not only uh, because a frequent question that people ask is, should I count all the proteins that I eat that comes from bread and grains and stuff like that? And I say, yes, but try to have it in the back of your mind that most of the protein that you eat should come from a high quality protein source. And then the last third of that can come from an incomplete source. You, you raise a good one. I never thought about that in terms of, you know, it being, you know, the secondary uh, macronutrient within a product, like you say with bread, because you would, you would normally associate that that's, well, I know it's not completely carbohydrate, but its primary function is to, to obviously serve as a carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. So you, you were saying uh, from, you know, with the, where does that bias come from of the on and off switch? Does it come more from the training aspect of it then? the resynthesis and and, and, and and actual protein breakdown then? Um, well, the thing is that um, Lane Norton also have a good way of explaining it, that when people think about protein synthesis and protein breakdown, they think of on and off switches, which is not. It's who is the most dominant. So it, it would be, protein synthesis would be more dominant when, you've exercised when you're eating your protein feedings and between meals, there's something happening, right? There will be breakdown to, um, from amino acids to, to supply the demands of, of the body. So you'll have, it it, it will look like um, peaks and valleys in a sense where you'll see that when you eat proteins, when you strength train, there will be more dominance from the protein synthesis side and um, protein breakdown will still continue happening, but it wouldn't be as dominant. That's why I was explaining the things with the, with the brick wall with, where it's, it's always on. It's always ongoing, but who's the most dominant? Well, I think it's a good analogy to use because you can visualize that even though people, I, I have the bonus of being able to see what you're doing with your hands and things like that, yeah. whereas people listening have to kind of visualize. So I think you, you utilizing the brick wall, I think people probably creating a story inside their head as I, Juma's building a wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I actually use this analogy, like like this metaphor, uh, when I also talk about the effects of anabolic steroids, because, you know, anabolic steroids, they have, uh, and the reason why they are so uh, effective for building muscle is that anabolic steroids has a double effect. It increases protein synthesis, but it also reduces protein breakdown. So I was saying that when you were, resistance training and eating protein, it was almost like the one that was putting on um, 
bricks on the brick wall, got a Red Bull or an energy drink and was able to work faster. But when you're using anabolic steroids, it's almost like you would give a a baseball bat to the other guy and he would beat the shit out of the person on the other side so he could uh, actually work on his own without any interruptions. That's That's actually how effective they are for building muscle. Well, obviously, you're not, you know, a comp- you don't advocate for people to use the, the absolutely steroid, not. But it's it's absolutely not. It's it's more about uh, when people say that there's like there's they're not that effective and that you have to train harder. And usually, people ask about uh, like protein requirements. Because you see these high-level bodybuilders, they eat a ton of protein and people say, well, that's because they use anabolic steroids. And when you eat anabolic steroids, you need higher amounts of protein. It's actually complete opposite because since you have an increase in protein synthesis and a decrease in protein breakdown, the protein requirements is actually lower when people are using illegal drugs like anabolic steroids uh, due to the double effect that you get from it. So, so they're getting like a double hit then of of not having the the downsides of a normal human being uh, of having that breakdown then. So, so thus the muscle is kind of got like um how would I describe this a double a double effect through the muscle synthesis then. So they get like a double hit, but not having to have that trough that you described then. Exactly. Not it's the sure. same thing with it, it's the same thing with with uh, with weight loss. Like people always like people have this idea that carbohydrates is bad and insulin is bad be, uh, due to the fact that insul- <clears throat> insulin um, reduces fat oxidation, which is true. Like when you eat food and you have an increase in insulin, the body's not burning off energy. But it doesn't make sense that the body is supposed to burn off stored energy when you're actually supplying the body with energy. But it's what's happening between the meals. So when you eat food, you'll eat food, store energy. Then in between meals, you'll have a release of energy. So it's you're storing, releasing, storing, releasing, storing, releasing during the day. At the end of the day, you look at the balance and see, did I store more energy than I burned or was it the opposite? And that will determine if you have any changes in, in weight and in, in body fat. So people need to stop looking at the body as some like static system because it's not. It's very dynamic. There's storage and release of energy happening throughout the day. But when people see that, oh, when you eat food and when you eat carbohydrates and insulin and that um, – stops fat oxidant that means that that's the reason why we get overweight or or put on weight which is it's not it like again it doesn't make sense that the body is gonna use the stored energy in the body when you're supplying energy but then again you have periods during the day when you're not eating and the body still needs energy where do you think the body takes that energy from it's from the stored energy I think, do you think that comes from misinformation out in the wider media, uh, or be it, I think as a society, we're in it for the quick fix or the get rich schemes where, where we're talking about our fair and I'll put it in this one as well because it'll go out later. 
Uh, I did a video as of today we're recording about obviously things that I stand against with companies saying that you can get into ketosis or rapid weight loss. And this product is either in a powdered form, a pill. I can't think of anything else, but there's probably something I'm missing. And obviously people will jump on the, the, the bandwagon of these products because of the quick turnaround of obviously the goal or outcome they want to achieve, be it probably most notably weight loss. And they will spout out sometimes, well, I learned something and I'm quite happy to, to share that with the audience in terms of we, we are all born in ketosis. I didn't know that. It, it obviously triggered me to kind of say, well, I don't think that to be true. I was proven wrong. Where, whereas where I deem that information to be misleading is I've gone away and, and looked at the research and the only way a baby can be in ketosis is if the parent is in is taking ketosis, which probably from a medical standpoint, a doctor would not be too pleased with the uh, the mother being uh, in uh, probably in um, calorie deficit with obviously having two people to to feed. But obviously that's a different topic altogether. So I think where this is probably misleading and where people get probably skewed or fixated on these magical numbers where oh this person was able to lose enormous amounts of weight comes back to your point of energy out energy in if you're only drinking your nutrients and ultimately your food this is where probably common sense needs to prevail you're bound to lose weight because you're not getting any, the same amount of calories you were doing eating whole foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that I try to teach people that want to lose weight is that at the end of the day, it's it's uh, everybody, like most people know that to lose weight, you have to be in an energy deficit. So on paper, it's easy, but in practice, it's not because... Uh, the the hardest like if you look at statistics for people that lose weight and keep the weight off it's pretty bad it's like 95 percent of people that lose weight regain the weight within five years and uh, one of the things why they fail is because of hunger so one strategy to combat hunger is trying to focus on food that uh, provides high uh, satiety so, for example, I, I always use this example that if you compare bananas to, for example, blueberries, you're able to eat like three times the amount of blueberries compared to a banana. I'm not saying that bananas are bad. I'm just saying that when you're in an energy deficit, there's some choices that might be better because they're more filling to your system and will lead to a higher satiety because the body or the digestive system it doesn't react to satiety from the amount of energy that you're eating. It's the amount of stretch that's on your stomach. So technically, I could take a balloon, blow it up inside your stomach, and it's not providing calories, but you're getting a stretch on your stomach, which will then signal that you're full and feel satiated. So if you're able to like have these strategies of choosing um, foods that are filling, that's one of the 
best strategies that you can use to 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 stay full even on 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 low calories because again that's one of the things that people struggle with if if a diet is making you chronically hungry you might be able to sustain that for a week a two a month maybe three months but in the long run it's not going to work you'll come to a point where you can't keep on fighting that that hunger and that's why people struggle that's one thing the other thing is that for sustainable weight loss you have to think of a, a strategy that you're able to sustain in the long run so when people go on these crash diets i always ask them you have to when you're when you're when you're trying to lose weight you have to like think about when you've lost weight like say you're going from 100 kg to a to 90 kg you have to sustain the same things that you've been doing to get to 90 kg to keep the weight off so if you're already struggling with with the strategy that you're using because of your you're doing liquid diets or cabbage soup diets or stuff like that it's not going to work in the long run and and the and the downside of doing these crash diets is also that over time and this is actually one of the areas that I've done a uh, I've done some research is that over time if you keep doing this every diet will be harder and harder and harder because there's a down regulation of your resting metabolic rate so let's say you started at 100 kg and your resting metabolic rate was 100% and you went down to 90 kg and your resting metabolic rate went down to 90% and then you finished the diet and you went straight back to 100 kg your resting metabolic rate is not going to go back to baseline as fast as your weight so while your resting metabolic rate is normalizing you've decided that you want to do another diet so let's say this time you're starting at 100 kg and your resting metabolic rate is at 90% and you went down to 90 kg again and this time your resting metabolic rate decreased to 80% if you keep doing that over time your resting metabolic rate will be lower and lower and lower and lower and that's what i see quite a bit with a lot of people that have been doing this yo-yo dieting um over time is that their resting metabolic rate is much lower than should be expected. So uh, at the gym that I work, I actually have a lab where I do um, indirect uh, calorimetry, which basically is you lay on, um, you lay on um, like a reclined chair for 25 minutes with a mask, and then we measure how much oxygen you're consuming so for each liter of oxygen, that uh, equates to five um, calories. And then the system or the metabolic cart, it will calculate how much this will be during a 24-hour period. So your resting metabolic rate is the amount of energy that you expend without doing anything because there's still processes going on with your kidneys and, and, and lungs and stuff like that that requires energy. And... What I see a lot is people that have been doing yo-yo dieting over time, their resting metabolic rates comes back at 80%, 75%. The lowest I've actually had is 64%, which is really bad because it takes it, it might take some time to normalize uh, your resting metabolic rate. It's not a permanent damage to your your system, but it requires that you have 
that you're not in an energy deficit over time. So you might have to go in the opposite direction for, for some time to normalize everything and then try to lose the weight again. And I've, see, I've had clients that we expected them to have a resting metabolic rate at 2,100 and it came back at 1,500. And within a year, we were able to um, get them up to 1,800. So it takes some time to do this and you have to do it in a very strategic way to, to reduce the risk of gaining too much weight because calorie-wise, you have to actually go in the, in the opposite direction which can be a bit frustrating for the person because their goal is to lose weight. And I'm, I'm, now I'm telling them, them, you know what? In the long run, you will benefit more from allowing your body to normalize and then trying to lose the weight. Because if we were to try to diet at this point, we would just end up reducing the metabolic rate more and more and more and more, which, it, which again makes it difficult to sustain uh, weight loss. Why do you think then, Juma, that there's an objection to go the opposite way, you know, going to a calorie surplus when ultimately I deem you an expert uh, with having more qualifications than myself? Why as a society do they not agree with your recommendation? Well, I think for most clients, it's been more the idea of well, I'm trying to lose weight. Shouldn't I be in an energy deficit? Well, if we're going to lose weight, you have to be in an energy deficit. But I'm trying to think long-term here because I know that to normalize your resting metabolic rate, we have to allow your body to recover fully, which you haven't done because you've been doing all these frequent crash diets. So it's not sustainable in the long run because in this example, let's say I have a person that, their resting metabolic rate is 65% of what is expected. And I dieting, diet them down even more and we end up uh, resting metabolic rate at 60%. That would require too low of a calorie amount for them to sustain in the, in the long run. So either we take some time to recover fully and then and we do it in... Um, more strategic way to lose the weight or this will keep on being a vicious cycle where uh, it makes it more difficult each time you try to diet down. There was even a study by, um, I think it was Kevin, Kevin Hall, not Kevin Hart. I was, I, I, I almost said Kevin Hart, but that's the artist, Kevin Hall. He's done a lot of studies on um, overweight people. And one of the things that he saw was, do you know the show, the biggest loser? Yeah. 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 So, like 95% of the contestants at The Biggest Loser, they regained all the weight again. And they had like massive weight losses. And what they saw is that the participants where the weight, they put back on the weight, they measured the average resting metabolic rate from when they started and after they regained the weight. And the difference was five, almost, I think it was, 503, don't quote me on that, but it was slightly above 500 calories on average, lower resting metabolic rate than when they started. So you're basically burning a Big Mac less a day, even though your weight went back to what it was when you first started dieting. So this time, if you're trying to lose weight again, 
you either have to eat 500 calories less than that or exercise um, more, like expending 500 calories more during the day. And obviously you mentioned earlier in the episode about obviously comparing the, the blueberries versus the the the, uh, the the apple, the banana, sorry. Do you think it comes back to, um, from your opinion, there's less and to a certain extent dietary fiber gets overlooked? Yeah, absolutely. Because di- dietary fiber is not, it's not sexy enough for people. It, like people are more interested in, in proteins and carbs and people focus a lot on protein, which they should do. And I'm glad that we finally have reached a point where um, there's more available high protein foods, which makes it easier for people to get sufficient amount of protein. But I think dietary fiber gets uh, overlooked. And especially in the fitness community, I see people that they track their protein, carbs and fats and total calories but they don't um, pay attention to fiber. And fiber is, um, have several benefits. Like fibers are, are nutrients for um, the, the gut bacteria that we have. They um, regulate uh, keeping stable blood sugar levels. They keep us regular so we don't get constipated or have diarrhea. So there's several benefits to dietary fiber, and it also has beneficial effect for cholesterol and and, um, uh, heart health and and, and stuff like that. What I typically recommend is that for every thousand calories that you eat, you should at least have 10 grams of dietary fiber. But there's also an upper limit to how much fiber I recommend. So I usually recommend that people eat 10 grams of fiber per thousand calories that they eat. uh, But upper limit is 50 grams of dietary fiber each day. And the reason for that is... If the intake of fiber gets too high, fiber has a tendency to um, to uh, transport a lot of stuff out of the body. Some of the stuff are good that it transports out of the body as waste, but it also has the potential to um, reduce the absorption of vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, and stuff like that. And that's why I keep an upper limit to how much dietary fiber you should consume also, when you start to go into the 40, 50 grams rain like um, area, um, people have a tendency to get some digestive issues from that. Um, so for most people, they end up consuming between 20, 30, 35 grams of fiber each day, which isn't too hard if you, um, if you, uh, focus on eating enough fruits, vegetables, berries, whole grains, and stuff like that. So especially for people that follow like, if it fits your max macros, flexible dieting, I always, when people approach me and want to follow that, um, just so their diet doesn't end up just being Ben and Jerry's and Pop-Tarts and protein shakes, I usually give them, uh, tell them, okay, if you're going to follow this, these are your macros, but I also want you to have uh, a target for your dietary fiber, which is X amount of uh, grams each day, and also have a target to how much servings of fruits, fruit, vegetables, and berries you should eat every day. I don't know how the recommendations is in the UK, but here in Norway, we have a recommendations of at least 500 grams each day. And there's 
actually studies showing that if you eat more, there's more health benefits to eating fruits, vegetables, and, and berries each day. I think one of the studies that came out now, they showed that if you ate 750 grams each day, you saw more benefits from consuming that compared to 500 grams. So is it 500 grams in the UK that you usually recommend? or? Um, I think in the UK, most people fall short of the 20, I think it's 20 grams a day. And it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's over 50% of the population. So it's a, a lot of people need to re, recheck their, their obviously dietary intake. And obviously what I didn't mention in that video and, and you, you pointed out is if people are going to those extremes of using liquid diets mm-hmm. or juicing, uh, which I had an argument with somebody. I think a couple of weeks ago in terms of, yeah, it's, it's good that you deem it to cleanse out the body, which is to a certain extent ridiculous because the body itself does it. But obviously all, all the, all the fiber that you're then losing through juicing, because all that becomes the pulp after it, mm-hmm. where you're just, you're, you're, you're consuming. If we just use fruit as the example, probably consuming more fruit than you'd be able to eat if it was in its in, in its whole form yeah. thus you're consuming more more calories more sugar and obviously that's going to spike uh, your insulin and all that and obviously your insulin sensitivity and i think where you mentioned in terms of the fiber where people obviously want to have their goal of the weight loss being the optimal which is, is fair enough because ultimately you, you want to change or transform your life from where you're at presently which we can we lord and commend you for doing that change but you're taking out a necessity like you said juma obviously that all the health benefits that the fiber gives you and i think i think the more we educate people to make the decisions for themselves long term i think it's i think it's better as a, a a a society as whole the more we educate people about i won't call it proper nutrition but nutrition habits that you can maintain long term i think we won't have these i think they'll still exist because ultimately it comes back to the the money is king and ultimately most people think about the green versus the and i mean financial green not not uh vegetables uh, versus probably the long-term well-being of oneself. And I think where you said with the, the fiber, most people need to look at it. it. It's, I would probably say Scandinavia is probably one of the healthiest people on, on the planet. You might disagree to a certain extent versus maybe the UK. And especially because this is much as big in the US, the US that their decisions are made probably sometimes on impulse or television has a lot of sway over what they consume, not just with food, but with everything because of uh, propaganda, uh, uh, good marketing and advertisement. Yeah. And like one thing that is like, you you touched upon the, the, like the financial part of like with, with nutrition and stuff. And, to a certain extent, there, there is some truth to it because if you look at recommendations for, for, for nutrition from, and you compare different countries, 
you'll see that there is some differences in what is recommended. And that has to do with what type of resources do we have available in the different countries. So in Norway, we recommend a lot uh, like dairy is often recommended, like consume three servings of dairy each day. And that's because we have, we have good access to high quality dairy in Norway. Like in Norway, the cows, they eat mostly grass. So it's grass fed. And if you look at the United States, there was is they're always advertising these products like whey protein, grass fed, and it catched up here in Norway. Where people like saying, "Well, I'm going to start buying grass fed beef from these special stores." And I'm like, "Well, everything is grass fed in Norway. What are you talking about?" But they're comparing it to because it comes from TV and articles and advertisement from from the states, but in the United States. Cows are not grass-fed. They're they're consuming soy and, and, and corn and, and stuff like that, which is basically not healthy for 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 the animal because you have suddenly you have a different um, fat profile of the meat that you're eating um, because it's not natural for the cows to eat those sort of things. That like naturally it's 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 grass that cows are supposed to to eat. So. To some extent, the, there is some variation in what the rec- uh, nutrition recommendations are in the different. But I would say that if you look at it globally, I would say that seventy percent, eighty percent of the recommended they're pretty unanimous in what you should be eating more of and what you shouldn't be consuming too much of. So obviously coming back to the one we, uh, we alluded to uh, when, when you're talking about protein, Juma, why do you predicate not using whey as your source of protein lasting at night versus what marketing will tell you uh, vis-a-vis, you know, having casein as the form of um, the supplementation for protein lasting at night? Well, it's it 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 has to do with with how fast the body is able to break down different protein sources. So whey is rapidly um, absorbed in the body. Uh, usually, you see a peak in protein synthesis from dairy at the two hour mark, and that leaves a substantial amount of amount of time during the night where the body is not getting sufficient supplies of amino acids. So better sources would be um, like casein sources. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be casein powder. You could eat stuff like cottage cheese, for example, Greek yogurt, stuff like that, which takes a substantial more amount of time to, to break down in the body. So that would give you a, a supply of amino acids throughout the night where you have a lot of hours where you're not consuming uh, nutrients. Whey is pretty good consuming post-workout or pre-workout because you get a rapid um, increase in, in, in protein synthesis and a rapid supply of amino acids. But what I, I actually recommend when I, like I'm not a big fan of using whey uh, straight up. So what I typically use is I'll recommend people to have a blend of whey and casein which is what it naturally is when it comes from dairy. So in dairy, you have 20% whey and 80% casein. And the benefit of that is that with the combination of the two, you'll have a rapid increase in 
um, protein synthesis from the amino acids that rapidly digested. And when the whey has done its job, the casein will take over, which is a benefit. So they 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 help each other out in a, in a sense. So what I typically recommend people is that consuming whey with with uh, with milk, you approximately get a fifty fifty percent ratio between whey and and casein. But pre pre bed, a typical meal that I recommend a lot of people is using um, cottage cheese, oatmeal, and blueberries uh, combination. And the reason why I also recommend um, um, oatmeal is that we give oatmeal to kids for a reason because the oatmeal has a tendency to make you um, more relaxed and it's easier to actually get some high-quality sleep. So a lot of people that I have that struggle with, with uh, that have sleep problems actually see a benefit from consuming uh, oatmeal and cottage cheese before bed. And it's not coming from the cottage cheese, obviously. It's coming from the, from the oats. But just a, just a little tip there for people that are struggling with, with sleep, uh, consuming oatmeal before bed might be, might be of help. So what would you do for, obviously, the, the, the population that is kind of stemming towards I won't call it a trend now because it's becoming a lifestyle choice. Uh, veganism, where that's going to be to be able to get your proper sources of protein is very much more difficult for somebody being a vegetarian or a vegan because of their ethical reasons towards. That's a good question. Like um, we previously talked about that there's a different in pro- protein quality when you look at animal sources versus plant sources. But that doesn't mean that there's no benefits of, of plant-based protein. It's just that you have to compensate for the lower quality by consuming more. So uh, I think the, there was a study from Long... No, no, it's not Long. It's Devries and Phillips in 2016, 17. I don't remember. But Devries and Phillips had a study where they where they looked at, where they compared 25 grams of whey protein, rice protein, soy protein, and they looked at which one of them would, be, would reach the, the leucine threshold, which is basically what we're trying to achieve to maximize protein synthesis to, for each meal. So there's different leucine contents in different protein sources, whey being the king of all protein sources because it has the highest leucine content. But what you actually saw in that study was that when you compare 25 grams of rice, soy, and whey, whey was the only one that was um, able to reach the leucine threshold. But then they compared higher doses of rice and soy protein, and 50 grams of soy protein had the equivalent um, effect on protein synthesis as 25 grams of whey. So you you still reach the leucine threshold and got the effect on protein synthesis, but you just have to consume more. So what I typically do with vegans, because I have some clients that are vegans, is that I recommend that they increase their protein intake by 20 to 25%. So we compensate the lower protein quality from plant-based sources by consuming more. So typically if, uh, if there was 100 kg guy, 
typically eating 200 grams of protein, we would increase that to 220, 225 based on the fact that he's, uh, he's vegan. That's interesting. Does it, does it, does the, the actual numbers scare people at first then? Well, sometimes yes, because for vegans, it's difficult to increase the protein amounts in their diets and still have, um, let's say, for example, if you're doing a weight loss phase, it's difficult to have a high protein intake and keeping carbs and fats low if that's if the goal is weight loss because a lot of when you're eating a lot of plant-based sources you also get a substantial amount of uh, carbohydrates from the sources so it's it's not that easy compared to eating animal-based protein sources to eat a sufficient amount of proteins uh, without getting x amount of um, of carbs when you're eating the different sources. So that might be a challenge for some people to, to get the, the, the protein amounts that high and still keeping carbs and fats in, in, in check. So they have to be a little bit more adaptable and flexible to their, to their diet, to dietary needs versus say somebody that's, I won't say normal because that's offensive, be it that's getting their, their, their sources from animals. Well, we, you have to be more. Um, you have to be more. Focus more on the the sources that you're eating, um, and one of the challenges that I sometimes have with vegans is that they don't have quite the variety of food sources that that they eat, even though they're eating sufficient amounts of of fruit, fruits and vegetables and, and berries and stuff like that, usually they have a bit more struggle with variation in their protein sources due to the fact that it's, it doesn't have the same um, variety as if you were eating plant-based, uh, sorry, animal-based protein sources. So that might be a challenge sometimes. And, and also one of the things that might be like underestimated uh, is that it's even though vegans eat a lot of um, vegetables and stuff, it's qu- quite challenging for them oftentimes to get sufficient amount of everything. And that might have to do with the limitations they have from, from um, different food sources, even though even, because they don't eat animal sources, but it also has something to do with um, the bioavailability of a lot of vitamins and minerals that you found in plants, they're not as easily absorbed as vitamins and minerals you'll find in animal sources. So example, iron that comes from red meat and animal sources has a much higher bioavailability, so it's easier for the body to absorb it compared to iron that comes from, let's say, spinach. Spinach is not a... Spinach has a lot of iron in it, but if you eat the spinach raw, there's a lot of stuff in the spinach that will hinder the optimal absorption of spinach. So the net amount of iron that you're getting from raw spinach is quite low. So you'll have to um, cook it or do something with it, like heat it or stuff like that, to actually maybe make it more absorbable 
for for the body. While um, a steak, you don't have to basically do anything with it because it's so easily um, digested and absorbed by the body. So that's why, like, typically we'll say to athletes that when you're eating grains or not athletes, like general population as well, when you're eating grains, you should have um, a vitamin C source in there because that will help the body absorb the iron from the the grains that you're eating. So let's say, for example, you're eating a whole grain sandwich for for lunch, it might be a good idea to eat an orange or something with vitamin C in it because it helps to absorb the iron from 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 the grains that you're eating but you don't have to drink orange juice when you're eating a steak because it doesn't need that help so from that basis then um i think it's disney popeye is very manipulative then because you know he's eating he's eating the raw spinach out of the can so is is that very much fiction versus fact fact in 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 what what you're talking about there well, yeah, it, it is because, like I said, as long as, like, you, you'll have to make some, you'll, you'll have to do something with the spinach to maximize the absorption of it. Because I see too many people, they throw in raw spinach in their smoothies and stuff like that. And I'll tell them that, well, that might not be the, the best idea. It's better if you boil it or stuff like that because then you'll remove some of the chemicals that are in spinach that hinders the absorption of a lot of the micronutrients that are, that are in there. But the same thing you'll see with, it's, it's not exclusively just for plant-based stuff. You'll see the same thing with, with some animal sources. A lot of people use raw eggs in their smoothies or eat raw eggs in the morning. But if you look at the absorption of protein from raw eggs uh, compared to cooked eggs, there's quite a bit, uh, uh, there's a huge difference in the amount of proteins that gets absorbed. So if you cook eggs, you'll absorb 93% of the proteins, while if you eat it raw, there's only a 56% uh, absorption of the proteins. So almost half the proteins are wasted when you eat raw eggs compared to, to cooked eggs. Does that not come from, uh, be it seeing, obviously, bodybuilders in the past doing it, be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, just to name him, but obviously multiple people within obviously being big uh, and being for a, I won't be gender specific, but be if somebody wanted to become that way inclined to be, to be uh, more aesthetically pleasing, do you think it's a bias to what histor- historically has been ever, versus actually evidence being in actually from from a scientific perspective yeah absolutely and i think uh, i think not only bodybuilders but people like like rocky sylvester stallone in the rocky movies used to do that and people would see that uh, hulk hogan famous wrestler used to do that it, like the funny thing is that like for me as a nutritionist i'll, I'll see a video of, of hulk hogan talking about he's he's uh, taking eggs uh eating them raw mixing them with red bull in the morning before he goes to training and in one of the videos he actually says the reason why he eats raw eggs in the morning is because there's no carbs and no fats only proteins in them which is not correct because the yolks has quite a bit of fat in it 
So it's just like basic knowledge about nutrition is like non-existing with some of these people. And still people see this and they'll try to eliminate, uh, like do the same thing as them. So obviously you mentioned iron and it, it moves me nicely to the next question I've got you to, for you, uh, Juma. Are active women more susceptible to, to susceptible to iron deficiency? Yeah, and there's different reasons why they are. Um, first off, um, women do, don't have the same levels as uh, men when it comes to testosterone. So testosterone um, stimulates to increases in red blood cells. That's why men are not as uh, at risk for iron deficiencies as women. So that's one reason. Another reason is like menstrual cycle women um, of natural causes, they, they lose um, blood during the month when they have their menstrual cycle. And women have, like females has a tendency to not eat as much uh, red meat uh, and other good sources of iron. So dietary iron intake seems to be lower in females compared to, to, to men. But when they're trained, there's also something that we see that are different for females compared to males. Uh, they have a tendency to lose more iron through sweat, um, decreases in red blood cells when they exercise, especially if they're doing a lot of endurance exercise. They have more like these microscopic bleedings in their digestive system, so they actually lose um, blood from their feces as well. Um, and another thing, and this is not exclusively to females, it's for both males and females. When you exercise, you have an increase in a hormone called hepcidin. So hepcidin, it actually hinders the absorption of iron. So what we teach these athletes is that if you're iron deficient or have a tendency to get iron deficiency, the iron-rich meals and the iron supplements that you take should be as far away as possible from your training sessions. So it's not a good idea to do a training session and then have uh, your iron-rich meals or supplements taking shortly after the workouts. So I think is I think it's six or eight hours that they should be away from from the training session. So so that's also one area you should focus on to maximize the absorption of um, of iron from the food that you eat that try to eat your iron rich meals as far away as possible from your training sessions so it doesn't get affected from the increase in hepcidine after exercise that's that's, that's very interesting in terms of why obviously for this is for me out of curiosity as well in juma why does from the, the bleeding from a di digestional effect only women and not men? Well, that's a good question. And I don't think I have a, a good answer for that. Um, it, it, it might like, it's not exclusively for females because it happens in men as well, but you have, you see a, a tendency that they have an increase both in that and also in sweat losses when it comes to iron. Uh, and some sports are more prone to iron deficiencies. 
and that has to um, that has something to do with the type of activity that you do so for example doing endurance exercise like running for a marathon and stuff like that has a tendency to use more red blood cells which then again make you more um, prone to having iron deficiencies but why women are more prone to that compared to men i don't have a good answer for that i appreciate your honesty with that that's probably for something for you and i to maybe research further into and then obviously get the answer for absolutely so obviously i say to anybody listening to this episode that's probably something to hold us both accountable for have you done the research and found the answer to that question Mm-hmm. So moving on to my next one for you, uh, Juma. In terms of water, and this is what I found very interesting reading reading one of your posts with it, is why is this premise towards twenty? Uh, sorry, thirty five milliliters per kilo per day day in terms of your water consumption. Well, there's there's no research showing that. That's just a, a practical number for most people to follow. Because one of the things that's difficult with giving um, fluid intake recommendation is that it can vary quite substantially based on the type of exercise you're doing, the type of duration, like the, the duration of the exercise, the type of climate that they're training in. And some people are more prone to dehydration based due to the fact that they sweat more than other people. I think a lot of people have this, uh, they're a bit misguided in water intake because they think that the goal is to drink as much water as possible. You're actually just trying to get, um, be in fluid balance. So you're just replacing the water that you lose from primarily urine. You lose it from sweat. You lose it from, um, from your feces as well. Um, and the intake primarily comes from fluid that you eat, breakdown of glycogen stores that actually frees up um, water in the body and also from the foods that you eat. So a lot of fruits and vegetables, they actually supply you with, with the water intake. So if, if I were to give, um, like more, like more specific tailored to an athlete, it would be more to do different types of tests. Like we would weigh uh, you before exercise, um, see how much you drink during a session, weigh you again after exercise, look at the differences in weight. And based on that, we could calculate how much fluid you should eat, uh, should drink during your session. But for most people, it's a bit too complicated to do that. Uh, But uh, the reason to give uh, this recommendation is that I see too many people at the gym that carry around like three, four liters water bottles and they jug it down. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. And where does that come from? They'll see these bodybuilders doing that. And I'll ask them, well, do you think it's reasonable that you as a 70 kg guy is drinking the same amount of water as a bodybuilder that weighs double amount of what you weigh? No, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not logic at all. So there's different types of recommendations for fluid that you often hear. Some people would say drink three liters, four liters, uh, two liters, but it's not, 
it's not a recommendation that's based on the size of the person you're giving it to. So for example, three liters for me might be enough, but it might be too much for a female weighing 50 kg. So that's why it's better to give recommendations based on body weight than to give like these broad general recommendations that it's supposed to be for everyone. But my my best recommendation is actually this recommendation is based on like to give you a practical number of approximately how much fluid you should um, take in. But a better recommendation is actually to look at different things and then based on that, try to um, estimate how much fluid you need. So what I typically do is I'll tell people to look at how how many times, like how frequently are you urinating during the day. If you're going to the bathroom three times an hour and the the stuff that's coming out of you is as clear as water, you're obviously drinking too much. If you're always feeling full and heavy after drinking, you're obviously drinking too much. Uh, So you should frequently go to the, the restroom during the day. There should be no smell when you urinate. And the color should be not as clear as water, but a a light yellowish color. If it's dark as beer, you're obviously dehydrated. Uh, But if it's clear as water, you're obviously drinking too much. So look at the frequency of how many times you're urinating during the day. There shouldn't be any smell. And the color of the urine should have a light yellowish color. So if you use that and try to uh, estimate how much fluid you're, you're, you should be drinking, that's actually better because that also takes into consideration when you have variation in, in climate, which can, like fluid recommendations or fluid uh, requirements can vary a lot based on climate, and like I said, type of exercise, intensity, duration, and stuff like that. So having a recommendation like this will uh, <clears throat> will adjust based on the the, the, the activity dura- that you're in and while we're on the topic of fluid intake and I will I will also I don't know what type of salt like how's the salt recommendations in the UK do you have mm. any recommendations for it's, that oh gosh that's a good question you asked me that um the recommendation for Oh, I don't actually, I don't actually, I have to look that up um, for what it is in the UK. It, it's because most people focus on, on the, sh- on the sugar, to, not mm-hmm. solely, but there's obviously a bias towards that right mm-hmm. now. And I think people forget about salt or sodium in intake o- o- overall. And I think would you mention in obviously uh, exercise, um, obviously sweating from a female perspective and having a um, a rationale towards iron deficiency. Obviously, hydration is paramount for that from the sodium within water and then whether or not you need to supplement that with either table salt for doing kind of at-home uh, isotonic drinks like that 
to be able to make your own, which I think some people don't even know that you, you don't have to buy it from a, a shop to be able to do it. Um, and when I've given those to clients, it's like, oh, it's not rocket science. And these are be like uh, articles from the BBC from probably about off the top of my head, probably about 10 years ago, because you can say the, how the, the uh, website has been archived. But to answer your question more specifically in terms of, um, let me Google it. What are we going? But let me ask you from your from from a Norwegian perspective. Then, well, what is what's the recommendation in Norway? Well, I I pull that up. Well, we in Norway, it's recommended that you keep it under five grams of salt each day, and we average see that people are consuming double amount of that. And it's a good recommendation if people are like if they, people have high blood pressure. But it's not a good recommendation if you're an athlete or someone that like exercising a lot, sweating a lot, because low salt intake is not as good is not uh, good as well. So and it, it can be extreme how much salt you you can lose, like how much sodium you're losing, because the function of sodium in the body is that it regulates the blood volume, it regulates the heart frequency. Uh, so when, when, um, you've probably seen like marathon runners, um, coming in at the finish line and they collapse and people are like, oh, it's probably cause they're dehydrated. It's not because they're dehydrated. It's actually because they drank too much fluid. So they ended having a low concentration of sodium in their blood and they started to feel, uh, like powerless. Uh, they started to cramp. Uh, they maybe they started to feel fainted and stuff like that. So sodium and water, they like people focus on water, but they should also focus on sodium, especially if they exercise a lot. And one easy test that you can do, because we have something called a salty sweater, where people actually lose a lot of salt in their sweat. So if you take a black t-shirt, exercise, and then... Uh, and then look on the inside if there's some white powder under the arm or the chest. It indicates that you're probably a salty sweater because the white powder is salt. And in, if that's the case, you should probably focus more on your salt intake, pre-exercise, maybe also uh, f- um, consume more salt during exercise, especially if you have a tendency to cramp. And when I lecture and talk about salt intake, because people say, well, aren't we supposed to reduce the intake of salt? And I tell people, well, you have to take into consideration that the recommendations that comes from from um, the government is it's based on trying to like reduce risk of like diseased populations. So people that have high blood pressure should would, uh, should and probably will will benefit from reducing their sodium intake but it's not a good recommendation if you're a high level athlete exercising several times a day um, sweating a lot and there's actually a good study to illustrate this there's a study from Golek from 2011 where they actually measured fluid loss and sodium losses for NFL football players during a training session so they were exercising in I think it was 28 27 28 degrees degrees celsius and the extra the, the the training session was four hours long so the biggest guys on the team they actually lost 32 grams of sodium during that training session 
and they had a sweat loss of 10.1 liters, which like it's 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 extreme how much uh, how much you can lose sodium and how much you can sweat if you're that big exercising for that long in fairly high fairly warm climate like 27 28 degrees and you have to also take to, into consideration that these guys use a lot of equipment when they exercise with the helmet and, and the, the, the patches and stuff like that they have on but it can be that extreme and i can assure you that if 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 it was a case where these guys were to consume l- less than 5 grams of salt during the day they would cramp up and have and feel like shit and would like be at risk of actually having some uh, some some health uh, problem because it, it can affect the the heart rhythm if the salt intake gets too low like even through low sodium intake or if you actually consume too much water and the the sodium level in the blood acutely is too is too low Obviously, I've done the research uh, as you asked. Our government guideline is six grams per day. Six grams of salt. Okay, so approximately the same as the, the recommendations in Norway. So if I move on to the next question for you, Juma, that I've got down in my notes. It is often claimed that too much protein can be harmful to the kidneys. Mm-hmm. Well... That claim is based on like people that have um, renal failure, like kidney failure. Uh, one of the treatments is actually to follow a low protein diet. So based on that, people assume that the cause of kidney problems is coming from consuming too much protein. But we have now, there's, Walzer had a review in 1999 where he actually claimed that uh, low-protein diets can actually be the cause of renal, uh, like uh, reduced renal function. Because you have to think of proteins, it's not just for muscle. It actually helps to repair all other organs in your body. So if you're eating too low a protein, one, you're not getting the building blocks to to um, keep everything functional. And another thing is that since, since kidneys uh, handle the, the breakdown of protein and the waste and stuff like that, if they're actually not uh, exercised in a sense, like the same thing as if you don't exercise your heart uh, hard enough, it can have detrimental effect to your overall health and your health. It's the same thing with the kidneys that if they, if they, it's like, if you don't use it, you lose it. Same thing with the kidneys. Um, but there's several reviews lately that that's come out and meta-analysis showing that for healthy individuals that don't have renal failure or aren't predisposed to kidney diseases, there's not not issue with uh, following high protein diets. So um, uh, uh, Dr. Jose Antonio. Um, in Florida has done quite amount of research on this area where he's actually used high, very like super high protein diets. There's one study where he did 4.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And I think he did a study where they were consuming approximately 
three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which is super high. And they did that for a whole year. And he did it for another year, like two years study where they were consuming these high amounts of protein and they didn't see any changes in, in um, renal fun- function whatsoever. Like renal function was exactly the same. And then obviously from a creatine perspective, why is it, or should I say, why is reduced kidney function an issue when taking creatine? Well, the thing is with creatine is that when you consume it, like the, the, the waste products from the kidneys is called creatinine. And when you take creatine as a dietary supplement, it has a tendency to um, increase the creatinine in, uh, like if you do a um, blood sample and, uh, and you check your creatinine values after starting to create, take creatine, you would see an increase there. But you have to understand that when you look at kidney function, creatinine is not the best marker to look at it. Like if you do, if you look at that and also look at, I don't know what it's called in English, but in Norway we call it GFR, which is the filtration uh, of the kidneys, like how good they are at filtrating and, and, and cleaning. That is a better marker for kidney function. So if you see GFR, which is normal, and uh, creatinine levels that are slightly increased, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. But if you see, uh, if you see that your uh, GFR is going lower and lower and lower and lower, I would be more concerned with that. And you have to also, I also would like to mention that the reason why creatinine is such a bad marker looking at, looking at it isolated is that it also gets affected from a lot of other things like the food that you eat. So if you have a high protein diet, you will see an increase there. Dietary creatine, when you take that, you'll see an increase in creatinine and also exercise. So actually, if you didn't, if you measured your creatinine levels uh, one time without doing any exercise, and then you went on do, uh, and did exercise and then you measured again, you would see an increase in that. So you have to know about these things. That's why medical doctors not always are the best at looking at bloods for athletes because they don't know about the effects exercise and diet can have on these these markers. So you have to take that into consideration. But um, if you look at creatine monohydrate, it actually uh, is the, the creatine form that uh, has the lowest conversion to creatinine from, from all the variations of creatine we have on the market. Because a couple of years ago, uh, we had um, a supplement called creatine ethyl ester, which actually showed to, to have a 35% conversion from creatine to creatinine. And that's why you don't see a lot of uh, creatine ethyl ester anymore after that study, because a lot of the companies, they actually start, uh, stopped selling it uh, because of the high conversion of creatinine from, from that uh, supplement. But um, creatinine, creatine monohydrate, I think, is like there's 1% conversion from, from creatine creatinine. 
and uh, compared to creatine ethyl ester that had, uh, I think it was 36% uh, conversion. So quite a difference between the two. Is that why is that that's the, the creatine of choice then in terms of it, both because of what science, science has proven of the other one and then obviously with the other one being so efficient on top of obviously your, your, your protein yeah. synthesis with, with, with either getting it from a raw format as well as from a whey, whey alternative as well. Well, if you look at the research, there's like over 200 studies showing that creatine monohydrate is effective. It's also most research creatine form, the cheapest creatine form. And to this day, there hasn't been a creatine variation that has been shown to be better than creatine monohydrate. I think people are a bit um, misguided when people talk about create like different forms of creatine because a lot of people would say well creatine monohydrate is the only creatine that works well that's not true because there's studies that have looked at crealkaline and other variation where they see that it actually increases creatine phosphate levels but the problem is that none of them has shown to be better than creatine monohydrate so the question is why would you pay three, four times the amount for a creatine variation, uh, like uh, a creatine form that's not showing better results than creatine monohydrate? So I think the study by, what's the name of the guy? Um, uh, Jagir, I think the name of the researcher, they compared creatine monohydrate with crealkaline. And what they saw was that well, both of them increased creatine phosphate levels, but and both of them got effects on body composition and strength, but there wasn't, uh, like, uh, crealkaline wasn't better than creatine monohydrate. But for, for this penultimate question, did Juma then, then why isn't there the same basis for what you just mentioned with creatine when it comes to whey then? Um, in terms of um, being digestion? not 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 from a digestion perspective, but be it one creating uh, one way being better than each other based on you know marketing will say this this product's better than than that one. Do you, do you, do you think that we need more research to kind of say definitively? this is the best form of way irrespective of price. Well, uh, there has been some research recently looking at what's known as native way that has a higher loosing content than like leg- regular way. I think it was way concentrate 80 that was compared to so WPC compared to native way. And the difference was, I think the difference was um, con- way concentrate was eight, and, eight to 10% leucine and native way was 10 to 12. So the researchers, uh, I think the um, hypothesis was that native way would be better due to the higher leucine content. What, but the, what they actually found in the study was that there wasn't any difference because as long as you reach a level of leucine, like more leucine is not going to do anything. Like you reach a level and then you max out and everything above that is like, it's not necessary. That's why we always also tell people that, 
when it comes to protein intake because some people say, well, if I need 200 grams of protein, why can't I just eat that in a meal instead of like trying to divide it? Because what, what happens then is that some of that protein will go to protein synthesis and, and, and muscle growth. And then the rest of it will just be converted to glucose and stored as energy or used as energy. So it's, it turns into expensive energy in that way because you have, a, you have a ceiling to how much protein can go to protein synthesis and muscle growth. And then the rest of it, it doesn't get, it doesn't get peed out like a lot of people think. It just gets converted because the body will when when the body gets a huge um, intake of protein, some of it will go to protein synthesis, and then the body will downregulate digestion so it's able to absorb the huge amount of protein, and then it will start to convert um, the protein that aren't used for protein synthesis to glucose, and either it's used as energy. Or, or it's transported to the liver and stored as glycogen or transported to other tissues is in the body where it can be used as energy. So my final question to you, Juma, like I like to ask all my guests on the show, is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today, for you it's going to be quite difficult because it's quite long, um, into one sentence for somebody to take away, what would that be? Well, I think if since we covered so many different topics, I think the most important thought, topic that we discussed was the topic of energy balance uh, and, and weight loss. And what I would say about that is when you're trying to lose weight, you should always try to think of uh, subs- like uh, sustainable changes that you can do to keep the weight off. Because if you keep on trying to do these crash diets, uh, you will just end up making it harder and harder and harder for yourself each time you try to diet down. So always when you're trying to do, uh, uh, lose, when you're trying to lose weight, try to always have a strategy to what are you going to do after you lost that weight? Because getting the weight to your target that's not the difficult task. The difficult task is how do you sustain that weight loss after you lost weight? And if you, from the start, have a very uh, strict uh, diet strategy, it, it probably will be very difficult for you to follow that in the long run. So example, um, a lot of people, they eat chicken, rice, broccoli several times a day to lo- lose weight. And then it might help lose uh, getting the weight off, but it's going to be extremely difficult to sustain that eating pattern in the long run. Um, I know from personal experience because I got burned out on chicken breast many years ago when I was eating like three times a day, I was eating chicken rice and broccoli and I just ended up hating eating chicken. So nowadays I'm able to eat chicken again but I'm not, I'm never going to go back to eating, like eating it several times a day. And one reason is that you get sick and tired of eating. And the other thing is that it doesn't create a lot of variety in your diet. So it's actually harder to get in all the micronutrients that you eat. So that would be my take home message from this uh, 
podcast we had today. So once again, Juma, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Juma and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Coach Juma Araki. So that's Coach J-U-M-A-I-R-A-K-I and at James O. Roberts 11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And in addition, if you had any follow-up questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to check him out on his website, www.jumaeraki.com. And as always, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in The Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, I've also rebranded my other Facebook group to adapt, master and improve your exercise and diet to help you lose £10 plus. So make sure to check those links out. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsum.com under the category nutrition. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.